pray, Father, that we would rest in Christ. He is our rest. He is our hope. He is our forgiveness, our salvation, and our eternity. We praise you for the privilege to sing as Christian brothers and sisters. And for those who know not Christ, we pray that you would draw them to saving faith, even today and even through this time together in the Word. And for those of us who strive to walk with you and grow in sanctification, there's a message before us that we need. We pray that the Spirit would teach and convict and direct our thoughts, that you would accomplish for the glory of your name what we can never accomplish together on our own strength. But we pray, Father, that you'd meet with us here, draw us to the Word. We plead for your presence and for growth to take place. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It's a complicated relationship. Through the ages and across the earth, the relationship between Christianity and the state has proven problematic. At the core of this tension, of course, is the fact that we are citizens of another kingdom. Christ's kingdom operates on laws and it asserts priorities that baffle unbelievers and offend the convictions of other kingdoms. Sometimes this clash of kingdoms is experienced less formally on a local level. At other times, the full powers of the state are directly leveled against Christians precisely because of their beliefs and the influence that we have on society. Complicating this relationship is the fact that God ordains these same governing authorities and commissions them to administer justice. And he calls us to obey and to honor their authority. Yet people of power often act not justly, but unjustly. And they use their powers to abuse God's people. Our experience of such persecution is not as intense as the travails of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. Yet we sense that the stormy winds blowing against us are gathering force, don't we? Persecution by the state is our highest concern in this troubled relationship where there is the abuse of power as global Christians, as we think of all believers together. This is, our, this is the, the pinnacle of our concern in these matters. But there are narrower applications, are they not? And many times we suffer these personally. The abuse of power against the weak and the vulnerable, against minorities and the disadvantaged, against children and the poor is found at every level of society. There are those who in a position of strength can harm. Pastors, teachers, parents, siblings, police officers, administrators, Bankers, elected officials, and right down to the classroom bully. A never-ending list of people able and willing to abuse power in ways that harm others. This is our world. We, we need to calibrate our worldview to that world rightly. First Kings chapter 21 narrates an egregious abuse of power 
And it's intended, I think, given to us by the Spirit, in part, that, we would, that it would mold and strengthen our worldview in light of the unending string of injustices that we see, and indeed as we look at a world that seeks to stamp out our faith. We see in the first 16 verses of this narrative the truth that providentially power brokers can freely wield their power in abusive ways. I think this is helpful in part to say this is God talking. This is, these, are, these are His words. We must understand that providentially, under His sovereign rule, we've sung of it this morning, that under that providential rule, power brokers are not stopped in their tracks. They are free to operate and to sin. And we see that in this narrative before us. It begins chapter 21 and verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. We're going to take a few moments to work through these first few verses just to get the setting for us here. But remembering how Israel is laid out. And when we think of that northern kingdom of Israel, there's that, that kind of spine down the middle of the, of, the, of the land there. And Ahab with a palace that's his formal palace is at the southern end of that red circle. But he has also, I'm sorry, his main palace, but he also has a summer palace at the northern extent of that circle. And that is where we'll find uh, him today, the city of Jezreel. Now, Jezreel, what does that mean to us? It's just a, a spot on the map, but I, we don't know precisely where his palace was, but it was somewhere situated uh, right there at that place overlooking that valley, and it's a beautiful scene. I, this wasn't taken out of his back porch. It doesn't exist anymore, but he had a summer palace there, and you can get the point. to catch the summer breezes off this, this beautiful valley and to have this beautiful overlook. So he works his way northward to that place and to that palace where he's next to a man named Naboth in his vineyard. All seems pretty normal, pretty simple going forward, but wherever you put the word Ahab with anybody, it can be danger. And we see it developing here, the storm clouds gathering in verse 2. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, quick time out, after what? I think it probably points back specifically the this, what's the this, verse 43 of chapter 20. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria, vexed and sullen. That is, he's been rebuked by a prophet of God for failing to align his will with God's will regarding the capture and the execution of Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. So after that, he's pouting, he's discouraged because God has rebuked him, and it's after that that we enter into this scene. And it's as if Ahab gets another chance to go to bat. And what happens? After this, verse 2, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. How does that strike you? It seems fair enough. It's a straightforward offer. It's a fair price. If he's a king, he could have low-balled it or just taken it away, perhaps. But he offers the man money or another vineyard. It seems fair. 
he wants uh, vegetables to go with his summer palace and make the time and the dining all that much better to in, increase the summer cuisine. So what do you say, Naboth? Do we have a deal? At the surface, it kind of reads that way. But familiarity with the Mosaic law, a familiarity Ahab was called of God to develop, informs us otherwise. What Ahab has just done is ask Naboth to willingly violate God's covenant with Israel. The Mosaic law, the land was God's, and it was allotted in sacred trust to the tribes of Israel. So if somebody had a family inheritance, they saw it as coming from God, and if they ran into financial trouble, the law permitted them the opportunity to sell the land. But we put the word sell in quotation marks. Because every 70 years, at the year of Jubilee, all land would revert back to the ancestral inheritance. So when you sold your land, you weren't actually selling it, but in a sense you were leasing it until the year of release, Jubilee, and anywhere along the line you were free to redeem it. So there was an established price by which if you, if you paid that price, you could redeem your land, or at every 70 years, everything would go back to where it was. That's in the law of Moses. I believe that it's certainly at least probable, that Ahab knew that law. We see time and again he cares nothing about the law of God, and so he asks this man to do something that is against God's will. It's also this system would keep families from falling into irremediable, uh, irremediable pro, uh, poverty. And so it, it's, it's an interesting uh, connection and, and idea that we really can't apply in our day, but it was applicable in that day. So here's Naboth's decision. Does he sell his ancestral inheritance against the law of God, or does he honor the king's desire? I mean, when a king wants a vegetable garden, it's, it's, it means something. What's he going to do? Verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. I think putting it that way, it's not, yeah, I don't like the price you're offering. I just, I want to hold on to this property. It really produces great grapes. It'd be a shame to see it producing tomatoes and cucumbers. He says, he invokes the name of the Lord. The Lord forbid. That is, the Lord's law, the Lord had spoken in his law, and this is bad. We're not to do this. I cannot give you the inheritance of my fathers. It's a gift from God. His law says it. You're asking me to break his law. Verse 4, and Ahab went into his house. Here it is. I think this is where the after this comes. Vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. So Ahab locks idolatrous eyes on something that he does not own, had no right to possess. But that desire gave way to lust, and that desire denied finds Ahab in another royal pity party. My feelings are so hurt I'm starting a hunger strike right now. 
I, I, it's, it's like a little kid in his room complaining. In 1634, in the matter of rebuilding Jericho. In 2042, in the matter of Ben-Hadad, Ahab dismisses God's will again and again. He does so here, and it leads to nothing but a state of depression. He is so frustrated with God. He keeps getting in my way. So pouting in his room, he enters into a depression. He hasn't gotten what he wants. However, Ahab does not live alone. Enter Queen Jezebel. Verse 5. Apparently missing him for supper, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. That's not quite how he answered it, but that was the gist of it. I'm not going to give you, that, give you my vineyard. The clouds of evil have begun to darken with Ahab's request. But in verse 7, the darkness deepens exponentially. We can fairly hear the demons shriek with glee. As Jezebel, verse 7, his wife said to him, do you not govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She kind of pokes her finger in his chest, so to speak, and says, what are you thinking, Ahab? You're the king. Act like it. You have power in your hand to get what you want. Come have your dinner. I'll fix this. I'll get your vegetable garden. Ahab had power and Ahab wanted something. Jezebel says, let me help you out here. I'm going to put these two together for you. The 17th century monarch Louis XIV of France famously said, I am the state. My will is what matters. I am the law. I am the state. The dictatorial butcher of Soviet Russia, Joseph Stalin, famously said, death is the solution to all problems. No man, no problem. In an I am the state spirit, Jezebel wields her husband's power to create a no man, no problem solution. Verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name. Ahab's name, the king, top dog. And she sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city, Jezreel. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. Some background. The ancient Israelites would call a feast whenever they wanted to celebrate something. 
and they might seat at a position of prominence somebody who was to be honored by that feast or someone they wanted to celebrate as a community. But when a community called a fast to set food aside, it was because something was wrong. They thought much better than we do. We, we don't even have categories for thinking in such a way. But they thought, Let, let's, let's set food aside. We will give ourselves to prayer and we will seek to determine why God has withheld His blessing upon us as a community. Now, if you got the top seat at a fast, there's two possibilities. One, you're being honored as someone to help figure out what's wrong. Or number two, you're on trial. You're in the dock. And they're going to come in and lean on that maybe you're the one who's the problem. So seating Naboth at the seat of prominence could be a good thing, but here he's on the hot seat. And Jezebel arranges to have two lowlifes. They are called literally in the Hebrew sons of Belial or sons of worthlessness to declare that Naboth has blasphemed God. In the Mosaic law, this was the ultimate crime in Israel's theocracy. And so we read in Leviticus 24 to speak to the people of Israel saying, God says, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Everyone knew this, and nobody violated that law. Because this was the ultimate law, the name of God. And should someone violate this law, the penalty was crystal clear. Jezebel apparently knows enough about the law or gets help or counsel somewhere to know this will be the outcome. So this is her plan. As she blows on the hot wax seal and hands the scroll to a servant for delivery, will her plan work? I think at this point they're probably in the Samaria Palace, and they're sending word. She's sending word now northward back up to Jezreel and to the authorities that are there. What's going to happen? I mean, the tension just builds here. Are they going to listen? Is this going, are they going to do what she says? Or are they going to stand up to this wickedness, this abuse of power? Verse 11. And the men of his city, Jezreel, Naboth city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast, they set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two sons of Belial came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, so the message, I think, comes back south from Jezreel to Samaria, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. So Jezebel's plan is executed with flawless precision. Every step of the way is followed religiously with no thought of God we ask, were the, were the leaders and the elders of Jezreel that corrupt? Perhaps. 
Or perhaps they were mostly afraid that if they did not fulfill Ahab's directions, Naboth's proposed fate was going to become theirs. And what we find, in fact, in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 26 is that they took out Naboth and they also took out his sons so that there was no claim to the property. Perhaps, like mafia muscle, they just executed the plan not only with ruthless precision, but tied up every loose end. No man, no problem. I want to park here for a few moments on just a couple of points of application. One thing we, we see illustrated here is the DNA of sin. Ahab displays for us what John would call the lust of the eyes. As the, as he, he owned two luxurious palaces. He was a wealthy and prosperous king, we know historically, but discontent with what he had fueled greedy eyes that locked onto what he did not have. Ahab wanted another man's field. A few generations before, King David wanted another man's wife. And having the power to take what was not theirs, both kings murdered an innocent man in the process. Now, I'm pretty certain not one of us here will ever go so far as to murder someone in order to get what we want. But none of us will ever have the power of a king either. We don't know what that's like to be able to say, that life ends, this life stays. I take this because I want it. But as we think of growth in Christ, we must learn to identify then the desires for what God has not given us. And learn to mark those desires very carefully in our hearts. It's not always wrong to desire what we don't have, not always, but it is often wrong. And even when the desire itself is not wrong, it can become a sinful desire. We must recognize this as we work against sin and work to root it out, that that much of sin is lodged in what we want and don't have. Pornography trades on such desire. Theft trades on such desire. Lying, clawing for higher position, disobeying disobeying parents. On and on we could list the string. I don't have what I want, therefore I'll work to get it. I want what I don't have, and I'll use whatever power I have, even if the only power that I really have is deception and secrecy. I'll use it to get what I have to have. And God's sanctifying grace in such moments helps us to control such desires and to learn to put them to death. To identify those desires, is is this a matter of wanting what I do have no right to have and finding a way to get it? I need to identify that in my heart. I need to learn to read my soul that way in every area of my life because the unfulfilled desire is a root of sin. 
as, he, as James t- tells us. But a second point of application, let's put together here, just view husband and wife. Verse 7, it's interesting, the Hebrew word that's used here, of his wife, we have the translation, is his Isha. It brings us back to the garden where Adam said, I am Ish, and she is Isha. She is from me. She proceeds from me. We are one together in this battle of life. When a wife is a force for good in her husband's life, she is his Isha. She is one of life's greatest blessings. But as with Jezebel, a wife can become a curse to her husband as well. Ahab seems content, from all that we can see, to pout and pity himself. And maybe to lose a few pounds in the process. But it's his Isha that comes in and operates in such a manner as to expose the darkest haunts of his soul as they link up with the darkest haunts of her soul. And so Adam stood back while Eve was tempted in the garden. She being deceived, he happily standing there saying, yeah, do it, do it, do it, maybe just in his mind. But as they sought happiness on their own terms, he stood back and did not protect. And in like manner, Ahab in gross moral weakness rides the wave of Jezebel's evil plot. The wicked desire in his heart is fueled by the godless machinations of her heart and a great abuse of power leading to the death of an innocent man as the result. They're playing with fire. We would say, though, that the contrast between Jezebel and Eve is pretty stark. Eve was deceived. You don't get the sense that Jezebel's deceived about anything. She wields her powers with purposeful precision. No man, no problem. And the life of a clan of innocent men is snuffed out. This happens every day in our world. This kind of scenario is taking place again and again, and it's taking place right now. All we need to do is look up the sources, hear the reports, and we know this is our world. It may not be your world. We may not be witnessing this with our neighbors, our church members, our friends. This is happening throughout the world. As people abuse power and take out the life of godly people, as well as ungodly people. But verse 15, as we pick up the narrative there, as soon as, I mean, how are they going to respond to this back in Samaria? As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Yeehaw! And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, what does he do? Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. The cold indifference is stunning. His conscience is so seared. No man, no problem is a song. 
He wraps his greedy paws around the stolen vineyard. Maybe if we give him a song out of our world, it's this land was your land and now it's my land. This land was made for me and not you. He doesn't seem to be bothered a bit. Good riddance, Naboth. Should have been a better businessman. When we read the reports of the suffering of our brothers and sisters in places such as Nigeria and China, Iran, Afghanistan, Myanmar, it's discouraging. It's like, God, there is nothing we can do. These powers of evil, these powers that crush your people, there's nothing we can do. The power brokers of such nations have the upper hand. They're in charge. Trickling down from there, we see government officials abusing their powers. We see pastors and teachers and bosses and governing officials using powers abusively wherever we look. So deep in our bones, do we not cry out for vindication of the martyrs? For those who have suffered abuse at the hands of someone stronger, someone who misused authority, our hearts cry out for the justice that we realize may never come in this world. But it is here that the narrative turns, and it is here that God counsels us how to calibrate our worldview, not to live in despair, not ourselves to be vexed and sullen. But the the narrative does not end there, but continues on to the second scene. And that is judicially, God always has the last word. God always has the last word. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Remember the narrative with King David? David's sin with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah. The story of David's evil is told in 26 point six verses and the last phrase of verse 27 just ending that narrative how does it end but the thing that david had done displeased the lord god is always there and in similar vein we're reminded that king ahab had a king reigning over him A king who is all-powerful and all-present and all-knowing. Nothing escapes his watchful eye, and everyone is subject in this universe to his sovereign reign. So verse 5, we read that phrase. It starts out, but Jezebel. Ahab is sullen and vexed. He can't get this field that he wants, but Jezebel. All the way down through verse 16. It's as if God just lets us sit in it and see it right up front. But God, the unstated, verse 17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, verse 18, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. 
he's in Samaria, probably here not the city, he's in Jezreel now, but the region, and which might indicate that Elijah's not in that region, probably staying safely tucked away, but it's time for him to go back to the palace. Time for him to revisit Jezreel after that whole thing on Mount Carmel never took root and Jezebel ran him out. He comes back into town, comes back into Jezreel and delivers the word of the Lord yet again. Ahab, he says, you're guilty of murder and you're guilty of theft. And God has passed judgment. You will die a violent death. The pulverized, bleeding body of Naboth cries out to me from the pile of rocks that were used to snuff out his innocent life. Ahab, you are responsible. Here is my word. You will die. Ignoring the prophet's message altogether, Ahab responds in verse 20, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam and the son, the son of Nebat and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. A few thoughts just by way of understanding, but verse 21 indicates that God is really angry. Because the way that he said, it's translated here every male, that's not what the Hebrew reads. It's pretty crass. It's pretty degrading. Those who read Hebrew someday, or maybe you got your Hebrew open, you, you, can, you can read what it says. But it signals God's intense wrath against Ahab. These men will die. I am going to root out your dynasty. In verse 22, Jeroboam and Basha were notoriously idolatrous kings who preceded Ahab. One commentator notes that Naboth's name here, as we get back to Ahab, it appears six times in this narrative after his death. It just it continues to repeat Naboth's name. One commentator says he haunts the scene like a ghost that will not be laid to rest. Or to say it differently, Naboth is dead to Ahab, but not to God. No man, big, big problem for Ahab. And for Jezebel. Verse 23, And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city... The dogs shall eat. This is his dynasty, now his clan, his children, his sons. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. The dogs in that day were much like the birds of the field. They weren't pets, but they cleaned up the streets. They ate the dead carcasses, the garbage and the like. That's your future, Ahab. And that's your future, Jezebel. Where this leads is really intriguing. And we have to 
pause here and wait to put that into the future because I really want to spend time on how Ahab responds, how Jezebel responds, and the outcome of these prophecies. Very intriguing. But we'll stop there today and just to reflect for a few more moments. Follow me. We live, as we know, in an unfair world. A world in which the persecution of Christians is rampant. And it unfolds seemingly unchecked in so many places in this earth. If you do not, I would highly encourage you to tag into some source of reporting that reminds us week by week, day by day, of the suffering of God's people. If we shut that off and don't listen to what's happening, we're not really walking with integrity. We're not aware of the world we live in. We're taking advantage of the ease of our situation and pretending that that's how it is everywhere. It's not. Let us be aware of those who suffer for Christ. But Jesus warned us that it would be this way. In Matthew 10, 18, He said, You will be dragged before governors and kings for My sake. People will abuse their power to seek to crush what you are doing. And His counsel there is, Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious how to respond, for the Lord will give you the words to say. You'll stand, so to speak, in the position of Elijah, and you will speak for God, knowing that He will have the last word. He is sovereign. May we never forget. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He sees it all. There is no one who's getting away with anything ever. Yes, the powers of our age unfairly wield powers that harm others in horrific ways. And yes, on a closer scale, such injustices touch our lives. There is suffering. There are people who abuse every day. It's a painful world. But unlike Ahab... We need not choose a vexed and sullen spirit. We're reminded by a passage such as this that God will deliver ultimate justice. He will have the last word. And in that we can rest. It is not a comforting rest, but we can know that nothing will miss God's notice. I say it's not comforting because ultimately we have texts such as this that remind us of the horror of it. It's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, he says to these Christians who are facing those who are abusing power to stifle them and to end their witness. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed 
because our testimony to you was believed. You did come to Christ. So as believers living in a land where Christianity has had a tremendous influence on society, we recognize God's justice in behalf of the weak, in behalf of the downtrodden, and maybe perhaps we take it for granted. But it's not that way everywhere. His commentary on 1 Kings, Dale Ralph Davis tells the story of a Hindu Marxist who read this very passage of Scripture. I think perhaps the first time he read a Bible, he read this narrative. But at least it was very early on in his journey. He read this narrative. And you know what he said in response to the God who protected Naboth? He said, I did not know a God like that existed. And it led him to continue to consider the Scriptures and this God who defends the weak and the poor and the outcast and whose people are given over to death every day as a fulfillment of the work of the cross of Christ. How much we take for granted. But we know as we're taught here that despite the suffering and despite the fact and, and with the fact, the glorious fact, that God comes alongside of those who so suffer, that we serve a God of final justice. And glorification will be necessary to remove every tear from our eyes. Those of us who have suffered the horrific abuses of this world, where people have harmed and acted unjustly, we can know with confidence that there is a day in glory when all will be resolved. Every tear will be wiped clean. We don't know how that will look. We don't know how that will work, what will change within us or what glory looks like. But it changes our entire perspective when we know that there is a God of justice who reigns supreme over every person in authority, over everyone who uses the least strength to the greatest governmental authority to crush God's people. A God of justice can only be a comfort to us if we know His justice has been satisfied with respect to sin. That's where it becomes very personal. I wonder if you have that confidence today. If not, I plead with you to know that the justice that will come down, the wrath of God upon those who have abused power, is just one category of sin. His justice will come down upon every sin in every private place, in everything that has ever taken place in everyone's life. He is the final judge before whom we must all stand. But this is the beautiful news of which we've been singing this morning and that we now rejoice in that Christ Jesus took all of that sin that He paid the cost of that sin for His people and that we now can come to His mercy seat knowing that He has purchased mercy for sinners. We may identify with Naboth, but in our sin, there's a good bit of Ahab and Jezebel 
in every one of our hearts. Jesus died to pay the penalty. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's not false advertising. He suffered, you will, as his people. But when he was reviled, he committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. For when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There is how he responded to that suffering. I will not return in kind. I will not fight evil with evil. I will fight evil with good. And then he brings it full circle around to our redemption when he says that he himself, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by his wounds. It is by his suffering. It is by what we read in Acts chapter 4. Those who use their power and authority to crucify Christ. It is by that suffering, by those wounds, by His death in the place of sinners that we are healed. Spiritually given life in His name. Rescued from our sin. For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This judge of all the earth is the shepherd of our souls because justice fell on Christ and we now as his people are part of his flock if you're not part of that flock you'll face him as shepherd or judge choose carefully I encourage you to flee to the mercy of Christ today and become a member of his flock let's pray We are thankful, Lord, for the reminder that you are a God of justice. We just don't always see it. But we know that the day will come when every eye will see. Where every knee will bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And where there will be complete and absolute and final relief from every tear of injustice that's been suffered in this world for those that have been targeted for a thousand reasons, because they're your followers, because they come from a certain ethnic background, because they are in a position of weakness, because they were, for one moment of their life, vulnerable. And on it goes. Lord, we throw it, we cast it upon Christ, our Savior, the judge of this universe, and the shepherd of our souls. May all who suffer such in their personal lives put their rest and their confidence in Christ and in the final day. May they look to the glorification when they will be relieved of every tear of sorrow. And Lord, may we plead for and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have been executed those who are imprisoned, the families that are left to fend for themselves, the horrific abuses 
that are suffered simply because someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus. Lord, we plead in their behalf. We pray that you would bring down kingdoms, that you would end oppression, that you would turn the nations to receive the gospel of Christ. We cannot affect these things, but we lay down our requests at your feet and pray that however you choose what is best providentially, that you will contend for the glory of your name among all the nations of this earth and contend for the glory of your name and the glory of our future in Christ with your people and in our hearts right now, we pray through Jesus. Amen.